John chapter 5, verse 24. I'll bet you're familiar with these words, but let's slow down a little bit so we don't let the familiar be taken for granted. It's a profound statement. So important, in fact, that the Lord begins with an attention getter, John 5, 24. Notice, truly, truly. And as I mentioned before, no wasted words in the Bible. When the Lord says that, he's essentially saying, you must pay attention to this. This is most assuredly true and worthy of your attention. I say to you, he who hears my word, this is Jesus speaking, and believes him, that's his father, believes him who sent me, has eternal life and does not come into judgment but has passed out of death into life. Can I tell you the context or just refresh your memory? The Lord is under fire at this time. The Jewish religious leaders in Jerusalem are persuaded he's a blasphemer uh, operating in rebellion against Almighty God. In fact, uh, last week we saw that he not only laid claim to intimacy with God, he claimed equality with God. And the Jewish religious leaders are incensed by this insinuation and in essence are saying he is not God. In fact, he is in rebellion against God. But can you see, if you look closely at this verse, can you see uh, the unity, not independence, but the unity of God the Father and God the Son, specifically with reference to the matter of salvation? According to this verse, to be saved, one must hear the Son and one must believe the Father. No, they're not in competition. Uh, no, the Son is not in rebellion against the Father, contrary to the accusation against him. Can you see how they're operating in harmony with respect to salvation? He who hears my word, that's God the Son, and believes him who sent me, well, that's a reference to God the Father. And so the unity of Father and Son is very much apparent particularly in the way people must be saved. Now, one, when one hears the message of Christ, and when that one, hearing is not enough, but when one hears and when that one, after hearing, believes, internalizes what he has heard, he has avoided two penalties which are his due because of his sin. And here they are. It says right in the text, does not come into judgment, penalty number one, removed, but has passed out of death into life. And so the two penalties which are avoided when one hears and believes are judgment and death. In fact, you see the phrase has passed out of death. It could be translated has crossed over. Boy, let that sink in. I just love this. When a believer passes away, uh, that believer is passing over from this reality into a far, far better one. I spoke to the wife of one of uh, our church members today who passed away. Her husband passed away uh, yesterday. 
and I called to express condolence and try to be an encouragement, and is uh, so often the case, she encouraged me. She was weeping. They were married for many, many years, and he was a wonderful husband, she said. But through the tears, she said, but I have absolute hope of reunion. I shall see him again. See, she knew the truth of John 5, 24. He who hears my word, her husband did, and believes him who sent me, her husband did, has eternal life, her husband does. So he passed out of this reality. You see, he crossed over into a far, far better one. Now, I want to tell you something. This is not a Greek class, but I, but I, but I need your attention for this. I, I think this will be helpful. There are different verb tenses in, well, in English and in Greek. And there's a verb tense here. See where it says has passed out of or has crossed over? Uh, the tense in the Greek is called the perfect tense. Please bear with me. I've spoken to you about this before. It's my favorite grammatical tense. Isn't that weird to have a favorite tense? Now I'll tell you why. The perfect tense means something occurred at a point in time, but it didn't end there. If it's the perfect tense, it says, though that thing took place at a place in time, it has enduring beneficial results of an ongoing kind indefinitely into the future. So at a certain point, the perfect tense says, an action was begun, but never finished. It has continuous effects and results indefinitely on into the future. That's the perfect tense here, which implies this. At a certain point in time, a person heard the word of Jesus, the good news, and believed that his father sent him to be savior in place uh, uh, in our place on the cross, save us from sin. That person heard and believed at a certain point in time. And that decision led to such an irreversible crossing over from death to life that it has enduring results long into uh, the future. In other words, that person is forever uh, safe and saved. Based on the perfect tense, forget about theology just for a second, just based on the tense God chose to put in the mouth of John here, the perfect tense, we could see when someone truly hears and embraces by faith the message of salvation, it so takes that that person has so permanently crossed over from one domain or sphere of influence to another that there's no turning back. Even though that person has ups and downs, slips and slides, if that person truly heard and believed, what happened took such permanent root in that person's life that that salvation event continues on into the future such that that person becomes eternally saved. That one made a decision for Christ at a certain time. And that one is safe and saved from judgment, therefore, for all time. I remember the time when this happened to me. 
and the place. It was in the military barracks. I was alone. It was September 5th, 1973. I had heard through a faithful representative of the Lord the good news message of how God decided to respond to sinners and solve their sin problem. And I embraced it by personal faith. I accepted Jesus as personal savior for personal sin. That was September 5th, 1973. So that was decades ago. And I remain redeemed today. That crossing over, you see, has enduring results. And I am persuaded, not by my own merits or virtue. I don't mean that. I am persuaded by what God did in my life then that it will continue so that if I die, First, or the Lord Jesus returns, whichever comes first, there will be enduring results of that decision enabled by God way back there on September 5th, 1973, and that is the basis of my assurance of salvation. What about you? Listen, those people who went forward at the crusade, even though they surely didn't have full understanding of all the theological matters you and I do, still, if they heard, and they did, the gospel message, and if they respond in faith and sincerity, and I can't judge a person's heart, neither can you. We'll see the results thereafter. But if they did that, that decision which they made at that football stadium has permanent and irreversible results. They have crossed over from darkness to light. They were adversaries of Almighty God. Now they're adopted into his family and have the status of sons and daughters, and that continues on into eternity. I have that not only on the basis of much scripture, but just this measly old perfect tense tells me. When you accept Christ, that's not something you do and are done with. When you accept Christ, that means you accept the fact he redeemed or purchased you for his own glory, and he's going to get a return on his investment. He's going to bring you all the way forth until the time when you see him face to face, stand or fall at his feet. I don't know what physical posture we'll assume. And he'll say, welcome home. That decision made then was such an irreversible crossing over, you can be assured of your eternity. That one who hears and believes avoids judgment and inherits eternal life. Now, when you think of eternal life, are you like me? Uh, don't you think of uh, uh, longevity or a number of years? Eternal life is forever life. Doesn't that come to mind? Eternal life is never-ending life. And that's correct. But I think there's more to the term than mere duration of life. I think it's more than quantity. Eternal life is kind of a new quality of life. Yeah, it, it is endless living. I got that. But it is also living uh, on a higher plane and in terms of a higher quality of life right now because it is life in union with the eternal God. It's a new quality of life. And it begins, no, no, not when you enter into eternity. It begins at that very point in time when you have heard and believed in Christ as Savior. And it continues on into eternity. Isn't your life different than it was before you met Christ? I mean, mine is too, for crying out You know, one time I said facetiously to a guy who was mocking my faith, you know, heaven and all that kind of stuff. I said, I want to tell you something. Uh, let's say you're right and there is no heaven. I don't believe that for one second, but let me just concede that to you. What have I lost? 
I'm having the most meaningful life imaginable. It wasn't like this before I met Christ. It was horrific. And now I have right standing with God, and I feel like I'm a part of his plan and purpose, and I wake up every morning, and I could talk to him, and I, I could hear him respond to me in the Bible. So even if what you say is true, all this is just something we talked ourselves into, there is no heaven. What have I lost? But look at you. You're miserable now. And if there is a heaven, what a loss of an eternal kind there is there is for you. So eternal life is, is not just quantity, it's, it's quality. And so the text says um, uh, this, truly, truly, I say to you, notice, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me, notice, it doesn't say will have eternal life, it says has eternal life. Don't you see? It's our possession and experience now, the moment we accept the eternal Savior as our personal Savior. So then, those who believe in the Lord Jesus, according to this singular verse, are free from judgment. Why? Well, because Christ has been judged for them. He paid the penalty for our sins, and there's something about the Father. The Father will not demand payment twice for our sins. Our sins are either paid by us and in us, or they're paid for us by the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a far better way. To go. So the believer does not come into judgment. He's now in a condition where he's accepted and acceptable, and he is a recipient of eternal life. Judgment, no. Eternal life, you betcha. And it goes on, verse 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. So who are the dead? spoken of in this verse. Who are they who hear the voice of the Son of God and live? Well, I'm sure this is a reference to folks uh, who uh, the Lord ministered to during his earthly time here, like Lazarus. Remember when he raised Lazarus up from death? I'm sure this is a reference to those literally physically raised from death, but I think it has wider application. I think it's a reference to those who are dead in trespasses and sins, and whom the Lord has raised up to new life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, you see, now is when the dead, spiritually dead even, will hear his voice, the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. Has that happened to you? See, if you're a believer, that's exactly what happened to you. You were dead, spiritually dead. What does that mean? What can a dead person do on his or her behalf? Nothing. Totally helpless in righting any wrongs we have committed against Almighty God. Totally helpless in bridging the gap caused by our sin between us and God. We are dead. And the Lord Jesus raised us from that kind of existence of spiritual death and separation and made us alive in Christ and gave us new life. The Lord Jesus was raised up from death. Did you know that? Uh, the world's Christian community will gather together Sunday. We'll celebrate the fact that we serve and worship and bow to a resurrected Savior. Isn't that good? And the resurrected Savior not only experienced resurrection, he has the power to bequeath it. He has resurrection power. So says the next verse, verse 26. For just as the Father has life in himself... 
Even so, he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. The reason why Jesus can bequeath new life to those who are dead, spiritually dead and physically dead, is that, as the text says, he has life in himself, just as the Father has life in himself. Listen here. Everyone here is not self-originated or self-sustained. Everyone here had a beginning, but not God the Father and not God the Son. They possess life inherently, and therefore they, the Father and the Son, can impart life because it, it, it resides within him. And the Father, verse 27, gave him, the Son, authority to execute judgment. Why? Because he's the Son of Man. Now, that's a very interesting term, oft used in the New Testament, in the Gospels, that Jesus is the Son of Man. Where does it come from? Well, I, I, I think, as do many, it comes from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. I'd like to read it to you. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like, here we go, a Son of Man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the people's nations and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. You tell me. Who do you think that's a reference to? Well, folks, it's none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. The, the reference to the Son of Man in Daniel 7 is Jesus, the Son of Man, as he's referred to here in John's Gospel. This Son of Man has life to give and judgment to execute. This demeaned, defamed, and defied Jesus is God in the form of man, and this Jesus has both power and authority to raise the dead and to judge all mankind. And we read in verse 28, don't marvel at this. See, he's speaking to the Jewish religious leaders, and uh, they're mocking and shaking their head. He said, don't marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. You ever wonder what happens to people who die? Well, this explains it. All those who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Now, we got to stop here just for a second. And before I make a few comments on universal resurrection, we got to straighten something out right away. If we do not, we might be left with a serious misunderstanding of what we just read. You see, at first glance of verse 29, it appears that good deeds are what? Lead one to a resurrection of life, and that evil deeds lead one to a resurrection of judgment. But wait just a second. The grand doctrine of Christianity is what we call justification by faith alone. Not works, not good deeds. Justification by faith in the amazingly finished and final work of the Lord Jesus. 
See? So that's the hallmark. Of, so it separates biblical Christianity from every world religion. We're not working our way to heaven by good deeds. We know we can't do that. We call that justification. It's a legal pronouncement. It means we are right with God, not by what we do, but by what he did and our faith in it. That's called justification by faith. And yet verse 29 seems to be saying the opposite. Seems to be saying good deeds are what lead to a resurrection of life. No, it does not. The good works or good deeds spoken of here in this verse, the good deeds that lead to life, not death, these are the good deeds which are the evidence of salvation, but not the cause of salvation. And the evil works that we read here lead to judgment are the evil works that are the evidence of unbelief that leads to judgment. So this verse is not saying at all that those who do good deeds will be saved by those good deeds. No, no, no. Nor is it saying that those who have committed evil deeds will be condemned by those evil deeds. No. It's saying that good deeds are the evidence, but not the cause of salvation, and that evil deeds are the evidence of unbelief. So the good works mentioned here, here's how someone put it, are the fruit of salvation, but not the root of salvation. You know what the root of salvation is? It's faith, confidence in Christ's death on the cross in our place for our sin. Please don't forget these verses which we've looked at in this very gospel of John. John 1:12. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. How about John 3:16? I bet you heard of that one. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever, here we go, again, believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. How about John chapter 3 verse 36? He who believes in the son has eternal life. And this very verse here, John 5:24 that we read a few moments ago, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. So do not be confused. Good works are not what earn us salvation. No, nothing can earn us salvation. It's an inexpressible gift provided for us, contingent on our willingness uh, to accept it. Now, the evidence of crossing over from darkness to life ought to be different deeds, a different lifestyle. So remember, what's spoken of here, it's not the root of salvation, it's the fruit of salvation. Okay, now that we have that settled, please take note of this. Your life is not over when your life is over. Here, it's not. Your life is not over when you die. Your death doesn't have the final word. It, death cannot pronounce the end of your existence. You see, after death, according to verse 29, there is resurrection for everyone. This verse tells us that all will be raised. However, not all are raised to the same thing. Some are raised to life, others to judgment. I'll read it to you again. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life. 
but those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. So folks, resurrection is universal. So if you want to know what happens when you die, at a certain point, you get raised up from it. Everybody does. Death is not the end of anybody's existence, not believers and not unbelievers. There is life beyond the grave for absolutely everybody. God is eternal, and he created us to be in his own image. Therefore, we are eternal as well. Some, however, upon death will experience eternal life, while others will experience, sadly, tragically, eternal punishment. See, if eternal life is forever, uh, I must tell you, so too is eternal punishment. And some people object to this. They don't, they don't like this. They say it sounds too harsh that one would be eternally punished merely for having rejected the Lord's uh, offer of salvation. Well, if you have that attitude, I think it's because you and I don't understand the nature of sin. You see, see sin that is not covered by the blood of the lamb, the sin bearer, Jesus, bears an eternal consequence because sin is committed against an eternal God. Therefore, hell is forever. Some people have the notion it's called annihilationism or extinctionism. You die and that's it. That's not true. Mm-mm, that's, not, that's just not true. The horrible reality is that hell is forever. And this horrible reality is why God the Father sent God the Son to suffer such a horrible death. Do you think if there was any other way around it, God would have sent his only begotten Son? It's very, very serious. God knows this. The eternality of punishment and separation from him for those who have rejected his son. Can you see why I'm so anxious to say to people, hey, let me tell you about the greatest thing that ever happened to me. It's when I realized that God was willing to forgive all my sins through the sacrifice of his son Jesus on the cross in my place. Last time I counted it, that was 40 measly old words. Hey, listen, I told you last week or sometime, I don't remember, uh, I ordered a pizza, my wife and I did, and the pizza man brought it to the door, you know, and I had a little bit of a conversation. I shared these 40 words with this man. I told you he's from Ecuador, and uh, uh, communicating was a bit of a problem. His English was far better than my Spanish. We did the best we could. Brief conversation, and, and in his nonverbals, I could tell that something was resonating uh, with him, and he went on his way. Well, I got an email this week from one of our members. She might be right here. Rebecca, are you here? We don't have any Rebecca's here. We need some more Rebecca's in this church. But anyway, so a lady named Rebecca, she emailed me. This is beautiful. She said, I ordered pizza. I don't normally do that, but kids wanted it. I don't do it because I have celiac disease and I can't eat this stuff. You know what I mean? But, but, but here come this guy. I knew for certain. As I, I, I started to speak with him, he told me he's from Ecuador. <laughs> and we started talking about stuff. And she shared with him. And she could tell he had embraced the Lord Jesus Christ. Can you believe this stuff? Not only are Sagemont people really, really, really sucking in the pizzas in Houston, Texas. <laughs> apparently, while we do so, we're embracing the person who brings it. We, why? Because the, uh, the, the, the alternative 
to reconciliation with God is eternal separation from God. We don't want that for anyone. But wait just a second. How could it be that this Jesus, you know, Carpenter's son and all that, how could it be that he has the capacity to grant us acquittal from sin and, and then eternal life? Well, here's what he says about it. Verse 30. I, the Lord says, can do nothing on my own initiative. That doesn't mean he's limited in terms of power. It means because of who he is, he doesn't do anything independent of the Father. Look, as I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. How can Jesus have authority to absolve us of judgment and grant us eternal life? Because he doesn't act independent of the Father. The judgments he pronounces are the judgments the Father would pronounce. Jesus has authority, you see, to judge and to grant eternal life. So then, this Jesus who rose up from death declares that we will as well, we who believe in him. Everyone will be resurrected one day. However, some, as I mentioned, will be resurrected to life while others will be resurrected to eternal judgment. Every single person, think about it, now living or who has ever lived, falls into one of these two categories, life or eternal death. Can I ask you, into which category would you confidently put yourself? There ought to be no question about it. It's too serious. You have to answer that question with an exclamation point. We'd love to help you get there before you leave tonight. Everyone fits into one of these two categories. Let me illustrate. When the Titanic sank, this terrible news of the tragedy reached England. And the scene outside the Titanic steamship office was, as you can imagine, indescribable because relatives of those who were known to be passengers on the Titanic. They crowded the street outside the office, straining to look at a large board which had been posted outside the office. And on one side of the board was printed this, known to be saved, and a list of names. And on the other side of the board was this label, known to be lost. One side, known to be saved, the other known to be lost. And periodically, a man would emerge from the office with a piece of cardboard in his hand on which was written the name of one of the passengers on the Titanic. The crowd, you can imagine this, watched eagerly and intently. They strained to see on which side this particular person would pin the name. Would it be on the side that said known to be lost or on the side that said, don't to be saved. There was no question about it. There was no third option. Everyone realized there were only two categories for the travelers on the Titanic, the saved or the lost. Can you see what I'm getting at? This is true for us who are travelers here on earth. There are only two categories, those who are known to be saved and those who are known to be lost, and I ask you, which side of the ledger do you think your name is to be inscribed on? 
Do you mind me if I tell you, not boastfully or with arrogance, but absolute confidence and conviction, I know which side of the ledger my name is inscribed on, known to be saved because of John chapter 5, verse 24. He who hears my word, I did, in a military barracks in 1973. And believes him, the Father, who sent the Son to suffer and die for me. Somehow faith was enabled, birthed in my life. And the gospel message, which I had heard previously, somehow on that occasion took root in my life. I heard and believed. John 5, 24 says, we see that person has not will have, has eternal life. And there's been a crossing over for that person. That person avoids judgment, is absolved of the penalty of his sins, has been acquitted of his sin. He's passed out of death into life. I'm not boasting except in the cross of Jesus Christ. And I can tell you with conviction, if I don't make it home tonight or something happens, I don't know, to cut short my life, and it's always that way with us. We never know when it's coming. I don't want that to happen. I'm not rushing it, but I don't fear it because my name is inscribed, we could put it this way, in the Lamb's book of life. Could I ask you, in which book is your name inscribed? I beseech you, take God at his word, John 5, 24. This Jesus was vindicated His claims were confirmed and substantiated by his resurrection. Buddha can't do that. Mohammed didn't pull that off. Moses was laid in a grave and he's still there. That is to say, ashes. But Jesus left us with an empty tomb. And in so doing, he distinguished himself as being categorically different from all other pretenders to the throne. This one offers us the grand privilege of being resurrected to life eternal. Why would you, why would I not take the words of this one to heart and say, Lord Jesus, thank you. I accept what you've done on my behalf for my sin. My sin was judged in you and need not therefore be judged in me. Now, resurrected Lord Jesus, come into my life and affect a passing over from darkness to light and bring out of me fruit, good works, the fruit of salvation, not the root of salvation, for the root of salvation is faith in him and him alone. If you've not ever made that decision, and maybe you're thinking about it right where you sit right now, but if you'd like some guidance with regard to this, Uh, Then when we conclude our service, in the next minute, we invite you to the area behind where we're sitting. You go out either aisle, turn inward, inside. It's called the Connection Center. People are waiting uh, to speak with you, answer your questions, pray with you about any matter that is on your mind. Please do that because you don't know, as did any member of the Titanic, that that ship was going down. And you and I are not guaranteed another day, folks. Seal the deal tonight by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And and, and Lord, I want to pray in those terms that there be no questions left in the minds of any one person in here tonight about their eternal status and destination. You don't want us to be doubtful or speculative about it. You want us to be assured. Perfect tense, 
salvation decision with ongoing results and benefits on into eternity. So I pray, Lord, it has to be in the power of your spirit that you would so move in the lives of those here who perhaps have not accepted you yet. I pray you would so move that they would, even tonight, sensing the distance, separation, and reality of their sin. Oh, God, I pray in the power of your Holy Spirit you would impress upon them the way to be right with you, the gift of salvation through your sacrifice in their place on the cross. And this we pray in Jesus' name, amen.